Welcome to this special episode of Basecamp, where we're sharing a sermon that we did at one of our partner churches at Trinity Fellowship in Ildeshane. And it's based off of a famous part of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, that I'm sure you've heard. It's usually in the context when one person confronts another person of some kind of sin in their life, and they scream back, don't judge me. Uh, and, this, and this is where they get that, uh, is Jesus's famous charge of not judging one another. But as we'll see, this might not mean automatically what we think it might mean by the way that it's used in the culture around us. So what does it mean to not judge one another? And how, surprisingly, are we to judge one another? Anyway, that's what we deal with in this sermon. Pray that it's beneficial for you. Well, good morning. Again, it's great to be here with you. I send uh, a bring uh, the great tidings of Trails Church elders as well. Uh, we're thankful to, uh, to you. Since the last time I was here, I actually did a class at Miller. I taught my first class ever. Is this your first class that you're teaching? It's the coolest thing. I had a module, though. I was Monday to Friday every day from 7.50 until 12.30. Uh, and so I had like four classes back to back with a chapel in the middle. So I did that Monday to Friday. So I left here. Then that, that next week, and then uh, I had a wedding, and then I led worship last week at my church, and I woke up, I woke up this week on Monday with like no voice. Uh, my voice is just absolutely gone, uh, and then by Thursday, I was, could kind of talk again, and so I'm hoping it, my voice sustains today. It might, it might just go, and if so, Matt can just come and read. Uh, just take up and read, uh, but I, I am really thankful to be here. Also, since I last saw you, our church, um, so we're a church plant, we're two years old, uh, we're a little toddler running around in our diapers. And uh, we just announced actually uh, this past Wednesday that we are going to be planting a church uh, later this year in Calgary. Uh, so if you know of anyone in Calgary who's looking for a good church, we would love to connect them uh, with, with what we're doing. Uh, or if you're like, hey, I'd love to move to Calgary. Throwing that out there. Um, so... Again, it's great to be gathering and opening up God's word. And now, if you, if you haven't been around Trinity maybe the last couple of weeks um, or months, this ministry has been walking verse by verse, a bit by bit, through the gospel according to Matthew, right? So that's one of those four complementary books in the Bible that tell us all about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I, I mentioned this last time, I know Matt has mentioned as well, that one of the main motifs, uh, the main themes that we see as we're looking and reading through the gospel according to Matthew is he picks up on how Jesus is this Messiah, he is this promised king over Israel who's come to inaugurate his kingdom. So in this sermon that Jesus does, the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount what Jesus begins to do is he begins to lay out rules for the kingdom, teasing out the law and applying it in various ways so that those who are following him might know what does it look like to live with Jesus as our king? What, what laws for him as the king in this kingdom, what is he setting up and how does he expect us then to live. And in so doing, we've learned uh, over the last couple of months as we've been in chapters five to seven of Matthew, a lot of the practical ways that Jesus calls his disciples to live out our faith, right, as we demonstrate our allegiance to him. And as we just had read for us, we see that the conversation today turns from last week's sermon, which is talking about not living anxiously, but rather trusting in the providence and character and nature of God, to, to now thinking back again about practically living out our righteousness in relationship, in regards to relationships that we have with others, specifically how we are not to act is, is Jesus's main emphasis now. He moved on from 
don't be anxious. Now, don't do this. Right. So so it kind of goes from a, a, a more of a, an understanding of how you live to a very pointedly do not live in this exact way. And he's talking specifically about relationships with one another. And as we will point out, um, one of the, the interesting things that Jesus begins to think through with us is how it will be necessary from time to time to point out things in one another's lives. Like if you're running around with a twig in your eye, it's very important that I let you know, hey, you have a twig in your eye. I don't know how you would know that. I get a speck in my eye and I'm like down for a week. You know what I mean? Like a little bit of dust, but yeah, like a twig sticking out of your eye. I would want to tell you that. You would want to know. Oh, I didn't know I had a twig in my eye. Like, how do you not know? Uh, so it's important thing, twig's a metaphor, it's important thing that we might not know things in our lives and we need other people to point those things out in our lives. So very practically, how are we to do that rightly and how are we to do that wrongly? And this is what Jesus begins to process through with it. And it can be a difficult thing to do. In fact, as Matt just read for us at those verses a couple of months ago, you might recognize that this is one of the most famous portions of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, at least from anyone that you might come across in social media uh, or in real life who, when confronted with something going on in their life, they will turn to you and look at you and they will say, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Or they'll say, don't judge lest you be judged. That ever happened to you? And it's kind of like they throw that as a trump card, like, La da 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 da. You can say nothing to me, sucker. And they expect for you just to say, "You're right." And they, they want you to just look at them and say, "That's right. Live your truth. You do you. I'm sorry I said anything." And just I'll just walk away now. That's kind of the, the intended result, right? Like that 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 trump card of using the verses that we're looking at today. And you can kind of walk away defeated because your whole aim was to help them grow in holiness. And now you're walking away saying, well, what do I do? It does say that in God's word. So I want us to think through what does this text actually mean? What is it saying? Does it mean we actually can't judge anyone? Now, to begin answering that question, we're going to first consider the word itself, judge. What does that word mean? And if we're going to go, does does anyone know uh, blueletterbible.org? blueletterbible.org. This is a great website. You can go there. You don't have to go to seminary or Bible college. You just have to be able to go online, which you can do at a public library. And blueletterbible.org. And in there, you can, you can see uh, all of the uh, English text. You can click on a word. And you can see what is it in the Greek and what does it mean. So if you were to do that, you go to blueletterbible.org and you look at this word, judge, what does it mean? You discover that the word for judgment that is used here in the Greek is this word called krino. Now, that doesn't have to mean anything to you, but, but what you can see as you look at it is it can be translated 15 to 20 different ways. It's a word with a, a really broad meaning. To show you uh, some of what it could mean, it means a couple of different things. One, it means to pronounce an opinion concerning right or wrong. It also can mean to pronounce judgment in a judicial way. It can also uh, refer to a uh, forensic law in disputes as well as in roles and responsibilities of governors and judges. And it can also refer to warriors and combatants. So needless to say, this word has a lot of different ways that it can be translated, a lot of different meanings. So right out of the hop, we can see that Jesus isn't condemning all of these activities. This is not a blanket statement that you can make no judgments ever, right? We know that because judges need to make decisions, right? Judges need to uphold the law. So if you look at a judge and you say, no judgments, the judge is gonna say, why do I have a job? What am I doing? Uh, right, so it doesn't mean that. Also, uh, rulers need to make judgments. 
people who are making laws and deciding the things that we do or do not do as a country. Um, Also, soldiers need to make judgments on who is an enemy combatant and who is not an enemy combatant, right? An enemy, shoot them. A non-enemy, let them live, right? They need to make judgments on those things. So Jesus isn't just saying indiscriminately, no more judgments. Uh, Rather, he's saying something very intentionally in what he's saying that that I pray as we walk through the text, we'll see it a little bit more. And so in this, what we, what we quickly see, though, is Jesus isn't commanding some sort of a widespread revolt against judging and against governing authorities, doing away with absolute truths so that nobody can make any definitive statements at all. No, because that would be anarchy. And we know from reading God's word that he is a God who loves to uphold justice. Right? Think with me in the Old Testament. When did Israel get into trouble? When they stopped acting justly. God was very unhappy with that. So he wants you to make right judgments. He doesn't want you to make wrong ones. He doesn't want you to declare something as good when in fact it is evil. Right? So, so then we might wonder, well, then what is Jesus forbidding here? What kind of judgments is he forbidding those in his kingdom from making? And so we need to do a little bit of work on understanding the passage. Let's, let's begin by looking back into it. So look with me uh, at verse one. So it says, so judge not that or so that, judge not so that you be not judged. For, and that word for here lets us know that the next statement, whatever's coming right after this, is grounding the argument. So he says, for, so the reason not to judge is because with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Now, that's still a little bit unclear what Jesus is saying, right? Like, we aren't sure yet. But, but we do see the reason why we are not to do whatever it is he's telling us not to do. Don't do this. Why? Because. Pause, you will be judged with the same standard by which you judge others, with those same measurements. And the idea of measurements here isn't like, like you're getting tailored for a suit. It's not like those kind of measurements. Rather, it's like, think about law weights, like in, in the way that you would weigh out grain or various things like that. This, this is the idea here, that in, in the way that you measure or weigh others is the same weights in equal proportions that we will be measured. So that's why we aren't to judge, but specifically, what is he commanding us then to refrain from? Which then brings us to this crazy illustration. Like, it's absolutely bonkers. Uh, he, he sets up this illustration. He says, why do you see the speck, which, which would be like a dry stalk or a twig or a straw? Why do you see that in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log or the beam that is in your own eye? And so immediately we have this kind of fantastical illustration that is kind of ridiculous. I mean, kids, I don't know if you like to draw while someone like me is up here speaking, but that would be a great thing for you to draw. Can you imagine one guy walking around with like a tiny little twig in his eye and another dude with a huge beam, like, like something you would see like that holds up a, 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 a roof, you know, like those kind of beams that like hold up roofs, or if you see like beams inside of people's houses, like searching all the way across, holding it up. Can you imagine somebody walking around with that in their eye? That would be, they'd like fall over. You know what I mean? I don't know how you would, you gotta have some good neck strength. You know what I mean? To carry that thing. It's kind of this fantastical, wild illustration that is just kind of a little crazy. Like, can you imagine the situation? If you saw someone walking around with a beam sticking out of their their face, your first thought would be, bro, you gotta get to a hospital. What in the world are you doing? There's something very, very categorically wrong with you. And not only that, but if you saw a guy walking around with a beam sticking out of his eye and he walked up to you and said, oh, I think there's something in your eye. Let me help 
with you. One, I'd say, no thanks, uh, because one, you're not getting that close to me because you'll bonk me with the beam sticking out of your eye. Secondly, you're gonna try to touch my eye when you have a log in your own eye? No, how are you gonna see clearly? And you'll probably do more damage than actually help me. So no, I'm gonna look for someone without a beam in their eye. Maybe they can help me. Maybe I'll go to my, my eye doctor and they will help me, but I'm not getting you to help me. And so when Jesus is sharing this story, this illustration, it's meant to be something that people look at and they say, this whole thing is ridiculous. And that's kind of the point. This helps stress actually what Jesus is intending to say. And if we're unclear still about it, which we kind of are, it's this silly illustration. We look at verse five. Verse five tells us something very interesting. So he's looking at these people. He says, don't judge. He talks about this, like you have a beam in your own eye. What does he call them in verse five? A hypocrite. What what does being a hypocrite have to do with having a log in your eye and trying to help someone else? So those kind of questions when you read through the Bible, you start thinking through and you're like, What does this mean? What do we do with this? What is Jesus actually saying? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so this this is what Jesus is demanding that we not do. Now the command seems kind of fairly simple. If you're ever walking around with a log in your eye, take it out first before trying to help others. That's the goal of the story? Great, let's go home. But no, not exactly. See, see, the whole goal here is that Jesus' aim for us is that we not be hypocritical. It, that's the word that Jesus points out. This is the word that he is commanding that we not do in relationship with, with one another. That, that we are, as we are practicing our righteousness as God's people, we're not to be those who walk around with beams in our own eyes trying to point out the specks in other people's eyes. He says this is kind of the definition of being a hypocrite, an actor playing the part and condemning those around you so that you look better in their eyes because they don't see you for who you really are. And kind of this plain reading of the text makes a lot of sense, but it also helps us understand what Jesus is condemning. Jesus is condemning here a hypocritical, self-righteous heart. And if we trace how this word hypocrite is used in the gospel according to Matthew, this command to do away with self-righteous judgment is kind of as the, the goal of this command becomes even clearer because this word hypocrite is used 15 times in the book of Matthew. And specifically, do you know who it's talking to? When Jesus says, you hypocrites, who's he talking to? The Pharisees and the scribes. That's right, those people who are doing what? They're making incorrect and harsh judgments of others that they do not use for themselves. They're using certain weights, certain measurements for others that they aren't using on themselves. It's rules for thee, but not for me. That was the mantra of the Pharisees and scribes. In fact, to show you this, I want us to look, if you want to open up to Matthew chapter 23, sorry that we're leaving Matthew 7 for a minute, but if you want to look with me in Matthew 23, this is where we see where Jesus begins to pronounce seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, woes against them. And here's kind of the general outline of the chapter. You can kind of skim through with me as as we see this. It begins with Jesus condemning their hypocrisy, and this is the message really throughout. He says in verse... verse, uh, one of 23, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. See there, the unjust scales, measurements for thee, but not for me. Jesus then continues, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, which is interesting if we remember the warning from chapter six, don't do your deeds so that you are seen by others, but instead do it for, to be seen by your father who rewards you. That's not what they're doing. So don't be like these, these hypocrites. He says they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They love greetings in the marketplace and be called rabbi by others. If we keep going, he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. He then goes on to say, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice this child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men, hypocrites. He then says, you tithe. Yeah, you tithe, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He calls them again, hypocrites. He says, you clean out the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So we take this idea of, of what does Jesus use this word hypocrites in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew? Has Matthew have this word come out of Jesus' mouth? And every single time it comes out, it helps us now look back at chapter 7 and understand what is Jesus preaching against? Making any judgments at all? No, not any judgments at all. Rather, he's preaching against this fake spirituality, this profession and knowledge of the truth without any form or substance of it, this hypocritical nature that wants to have rules for you that I don't have to abide by. You ever work somewhere like that? Or been treated like that by a parent or a coach or somebody else? Rules for you, but not for me. How do you feel when someone does that to you? Do, you? do you warmly embrace the things they come and bring to you? Or are you like, not doing that? In our flesh, it's probably the other. Not doing that. Right? And, and, and this is the whole goal. Jesus doesn't want us to be people who profess righteousness who live out our faith in such a way where we are condemning of people around us and yet we're walking around with a huge beam sticking out of our own eyes. Jesus doesn't want us to be hypocrites. He doesn't want us to be the blind leading the blind because we will both end up in hell. Which helps us understand what Jesus is condemning here, what we are not to do. See, Jesus isn't condemning, pointing out to our brother that he has a twig in his eye. Rather, he is condemning this self-righteous attitude which loves to point out the errors in others when there are huge errors in our own life that we refuse to even see or acknowledge. So Jesus is preaching against dead religion, against this desire in the heart of men and women where we have expectations for others that we just don't have for ourselves. We are not to be hypocrites as God's people. We are not to be actors simply playing and looking the part but whose hearts aren't transformed. Jesus is not pleased by that. God is not glorified by having people who profess with their lips and yet their lives are not transformed. So that guy or that girl on social media, they're wrong. Jesus isn't condemning all judgments here. 
And we know that because in verse six, look at me in verse six here, we're told to make judgments. Isn't that interesting? We are to know who the dogs are and who the hogs are. We're to know who they are. We're to make a judgment on them. Not only that, but in verse 15, I know this is next week's text, not mine, but in verse 15, we see that we are, uh, we are to beware of false prophets. Thus, we are to make theological and doctrinal judgments on who these false teachers are so that we can avoid them. And we will recognize them by their fruits. And while some may give false evidences of faith, there will come a day when, according to verses 21 to 23, everything will be exposed, and some who did even mighty deeds in the name of Jesus will be exposed as hypocrites, actors who professed Jesus but did not know him. See, Jesus is condemning here the self-righteous judgments of a religious heart who refuses to repent of our own sin, but rather just wants to find fault in everybody else. So so this isn't one of the blank assertions that we can make about judgments completely of like no judgments at all. No, because what we see in John chapter seven, verse 24, Jesus will say, judge not by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Not only that, but in Matthew chapter 18, we'll see how we ought to act with one another as members of a local church when one of us sins against one another in some way. Notice in, in verse 15 of chapter 18, if you want to flip there, it begins this way. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, now this is important because who does the obligation lie upon to make sin known? The person who sinned against you or you who have been sinned against? Which one? Who does Jesus put the onus on? You who have been sinned against. If I sin against you, I might not know it. I might have no idea. I'm living rent-free in your mind. I'm skipping along. I have zero idea that I've sinned against you. So whose responsibility is it to make known my sin? Yours. Because as Christians, we we have the, the, the demand, command of Christ to make those things known. Now, if, if, if I sin against you, is, is your job then to go and to tell a whole bunch of other people what I've done and get together a little group of people that are all angry at me? No. First thing you do is you don't gossip about it. You don't say things behind my back. And you don't, you don't say things to my face that you never say behind my back. Uh, you, you, you just come to me. Tell me. You have sinned against me. My job then, as the person who has sinned against you, is to then repent of my sin. And if I don't, then you bring one or two other Christians with you to have this conversation. And then if I still do not repent, then what do we do? Bring it before the entire church. And if I still not repent, as a church, we are to make a judgment that my profession of faith and my life do not match because I am not repentant. Now, it's important to say there, there are also things in life that are sins and there are annoyances. That's a big difference. For example, putting the toilet paper on the toilet paper thingy. I don't know if that's even called. Putting that on there in the wrong direction. There is a wrong direction. And if you put it on the wrong direction, is that a sin? It might be. No, it's, no, it's not a sin. It's a weird annoyance thing. That somebody likes to put it the other way. You're like, that's the wrong way. Or if somebody leaves a dish in the, uh, a dirty dish in the sink, is this a sin? No. There are lots of things that are not sins, they're just annoyances. So we need to be, we need to be very careful on this. 
Uh, right? The trash taken out is not a sin, especially that trash can in your bathroom. It's not a sin, unless there's a chapter and verse in the Bible, it's not a sin. But when there is a sin, what our job to do actually as brothers and sisters is to actually approach one another, to humbly and examine ourselves to see if there might be any sins in our own life. And then after much prayer, we're called to go to them and open the Bible with them and show them their sin. And if they listen, praise God. And if not, then we walk through the rest of that journey together. But we are supposed to make these kind of judgment calls as a people. And so Jesus doesn't mean here to not make any judgment calls whatsoever at all, because that just isn't consistent within the whole book of Matthew. So if you come across a a verse in the Bible and you say, this is kind of unclear, what does he mean by this? If there's clearer parts of the Bible that you can look to and say, well, he doesn't, he can't mean this because this is very clear and I don't know what to do with this. Then we let the clearer parts of the Bible help us know that what I'm probably understanding here probably isn't what Jesus meant by this. So I'm probably just, I I probably just don't understand what he means. And so uh, Jesus doesn't mean here that we aren't made to make any kind of judgments at all because that's not consistent in Matthew or the rest of the Bible. Uh, So for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, we see it's our job as well to judge one another. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, there's a kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the pagans that is being celebrated in the church. And Paul's words to them are this. He writes, let him who has done this thing done this, be removed from you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. For, he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those outside, those inside of the church who we are to judge. God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. So as local churches, we do make judgment calls and we're commanded to. When people are living unrepentant, flagrant sin because of their unrepentance, their hypocrisy, right? So so we don't want to give assurance to someone who's walking around like the scribes and the Pharisees, the blind leading the blind, if if we see no evidence of faith in their lives that they are Christian. To do so would be unloving. So in the household of faith, we are to judge one another and it's very good that we do so as long as we are judging rightly and not hypocritically. And this kind of righteous judgment is good for my faith and it's good for my assurance of salvation, just as it is good for your faith and your assurance of salvation, right? As I'm approached and someone points out ways that I have sinned, I, as a Christian, I have two choices to make. I can choose to self-justify. Well, I did this because you did that. I did this because I was hangry. I did this because whatever. I can self-justify or I can freely admit my sin, repent of it, and believe upon Jesus' perfect righteousness in my place as my only hope in life and in death. These are, these are the two options that we have. And, and as Christians, it's good when we sin against one another and then are called out on it and then have to repent because as we see in 1 John, that repentance is a marker that we are in Christ. Repentance, the, the, the daily warp and woof of our lives as Christians is to be one of repentance. And, and so what we need as Christians is other Christians who will look at our lives and assess us and point out things in our lives. Now, is that comfortable when they do so? No, it is not. Is it wonderful and godly when they do so as they're caring for our souls? Praise God. Yes, it is. 
and is the means by which we will be persevered and continue on in the faith as we demonstrate our faith to one another. See, the interesting thing when we're kind of reading through stories like this is we're often tempted to look at kind of the hypocritical people in the story. Like to look at the guy walking around with a beam in his eye. And what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to kind of make fun of the guy, right? Like, well, that's not me. I'm, the, I'm probably the guy with the twig. Uh, or I'm probably just in the crowd listening to Jesus tell the story. But I'm not actually in the story. And if I am in the story, usually what we do, we always put ourselves as the good guy in the story, right? If someone does something heroic or good, we're like, I'm like that guy. And yet, the fascinating thing is every time we come to God's word, we are never the guy who does things right in scripture. We are always the one who does something that is the wrong thing. So when we approach a story like this, we have two options. Is One, we can look at the guy who has the twig and identify with him, or we can look at the guy who has the log in his eye and realize actually what Jesus is saying here is, our hearts from birth and by nature are that guy. See, because of the fall, the interesting thing about all of us is that we are hardwired because of sin in our lives to not see sin in our lives. We're hardwired to self-justify it, to dismiss it. And yet in other people, we can become very hard-hearted and religious, desiring to point out their sin in their lives to make us feel much better about our lives and the things that we are walking through. So if we, if we were to honestly evaluate this past week, if, if the beam in our own eyes weren't so blinding, we would recognize that we have not done what Jesus is commanding us to do in this passage. In fact, we would see that we are all guilty of being this person with this huge beam in our eyes. We have been hypocrites we have presented ourselves in ways that are not true. We've made snap judgments on people that are unkind and unwarranted. And if you don't think that you have done this, this, this section of Jesus' sermon would just frankly disagree with you. See, because the problem is that we don't always evaluate things rightly. We're not flawless in our judgments. We don't always judge rightly. In fact, the more that I thought about this and just kind of let the scripture just expose my hearts this week. I saw how deep the roots go in my own life. I see, for example, in my relationship with my kids and my wife and other drivers and people at the bank, my coworkers at church, I have this constant desire to immediately ascribe motives to other people for whatever it is that they are doing and come to a decision about them based on what I think are their motives for the things that they are doing. You tracking with that? In your heart, were you like, oh dang, I do that too? I think I, I, those things don't typically come out of my mouth. They come into my mind, into my heart though. And I have thoughts like this. I know what you were thinking, and it was wrong. I don't know what they're thinking. I am not the Lord. No, I know. I know what you're thinking. Or I know why you did that. Or I know what your motivation was. You don't even need to tell me. How sinful am I? I'm walking around with a beam in my eye thinking like I'm seeing everything rightly, but I'm not. 
We make snap judgments like that, don't we? We assume our judgments are always infallible. And in our judgments, we are always guiltless. They are always guilty. Aren't they? You're always the good guy in your own mind. And you always ascribe them bad things in your mind. And you treat them that way. They are the problem. Their motivation is the problem. They, they saying that or doing this or thinking that, that is the problem. The problem isn't me. The problem is you. You are the problem. If you examine your own heart, you, you'll see that that characterizes your life as well. You are the Pharisee. You are the scribe. You judge hypocritically and wrongly. And what Jesus is saying is with the measurements that you measure, the judgments that you make, that is how you will be judged before the Lord. And this is all of us. That the penalty for our wrong judgments, the penalty for this hypocritical, self-righteous, judgmental, self-justifying heart that we all have is that we all deserve to stand before the Lord and face his wrath and his judgment because of it. This is another reason of why we stand before the Lord as guilty sinners who are hypocritical and self-righteous. We are the Pharisees and scribes. Not only that, it's because we deserve the judgment of God, we deserve to spend eternity future suffering under the righteous judgment of God against our sins forever and ever in the lake of fire as Revelation 20 explains to us. However, those who, those who are guilty of this, us, us who are hypocrites in this verse, there is very good news for us as we read through God's word is that he has made a way for us to be forgiven for our hypocritical spirit and judgments. And it happened as God the Son, Jesus, laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time to perfectly fulfill the law of God in our place, to not be a hypocrite, to not walk around with a twig in his eye or a beam, but rather flawlessly and perfectly walked out all of his days in perfect submission to God's word and trusting in God's judgments. And his judgments were perfect, for he knew what was in man. He, he knew heart motivations, desires, thoughts, longings. He judged rightly every single time he judged. It's just a polar opposite of us in every possible way. But then he who knew no sin, who judged rightly and wasn't a self-righteous hypocrite like us, he stood condemned for our wrong judgments. He faced the wrath of the Father in our place so that we who deserve eternal judgment for our self-righteous hypocritical judgments could be forgiven and pardoned. He is the one who then comes and takes the log out of our eyes. He is the one who gives us eyes that can see, minds to comprehend, and hearts that are soft by his grace. Thus now with eyes that can now see God and others and ourselves clearly as Christians, as his people who are no longer self-righteous hypocrites, we are then sent into the world as ambassadors to judge righteously. Now that we can see, we can help take the speck out of our brother's eye, not as hypocrites any longer, but as redeemed and forgiven sons and daughters who are called to do one another some spiritual good. That, that's, why, that's why, do you notice, he doesn't condemn the guy for wanting to help his brother. All he says is, take the beam out of your eye first, then help him. Right? It, it's the same thing that, that 
that David prays in Psalm chapter 51. Do you remember his prayer? Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. See that? Where does it start first? Your heart. Not being self-righteous, not being hypocritical, rather coming before the Lord, repenting, asking him to clean you and cleanse you, and then for your life to be used for the spiritual good of those around you, for you to live your life this way. And this is what we're after as Christians. This is how we are able to judge rightly, having been forgiven and clean and cleansed. We need the inside of the cup clean, so then the inside and the outside of the cup are clean, and then that is how we are to live our lives, not as hypocrites, but as those who are genuine. Thus, all confrontation of sin in one another's lives ought to be marked with humbleness and a recognition that we are all under the standard of God's word, that we are all under borrowed authority in one another's lives. So, so if you're newer to the I've borrowed, uh, idea of borrowed authority, let me explain it to how it works in the Boswell household. One of my boys, say my older son, is upstairs playing Lego. And I say to my younger son, Teo, will you go tell Owen, my older son, Go upstairs, tell him, come downstairs for dinner. So he marches upstairs. And he says, hey, Owen, dad says, it's time to go to dinner. Or no, he just says, hey, come down for dinner. And Owen says, no, I'm playing Lego. And he says, no, 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 dad said, come down for dinner. So it went from him speaking on his own authority, come down for dinner, to no, 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 dad said, dad said. That happened in your house. That happens in my house all the time. No, but dad said, borrowed authority. As Christians, this is what we do in one another's lives. But we are called by God to approach one another as we humbly repent of our own sin, make sure we're not being self-righteous, self-justifying hypocrites. We've been cleansed of, of that. We're repentant lives. We see things in one another's lives. We are then to go and point to God's word and say, hey, God said, I, I didn't say, God said, chapter or verse, here's, you're sinning against God. Thus, as Christians, we have this borrowed authority. It's not ours. We simply look at the book and we humbly come to one another and said, God said this. Thus, this borrowed authority that we have, it's, it's not intrinsic to us, but it's in the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. And it's that authority that we are all under as brothers and sisters in the household of God. As we're trying to live out this new identity as his people, complete with all these family obligations of reminding one another of God's words. Thus, in our lives as Christians, we are commanded to make judgments and to assess one another's lives in a local church. It's part of our job to look at one another in the face, to look at the profession of faith and the way that we are living. And if they are not matching, it's our job then to speak into your life, to help correct you into back into God's word. We are to make judgment calls and we are to approach one another, meaning that we have the difficult job of confronting sin, all for the express purpose that we might save the one from becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as we see in Hebrews chapter three. This is a real and a pressing need in every single one of our lives, in every single pastor's life, in every single Bible study leader's life, in every single Christian's life, because none of us are infallible. We all err in a billion ways, and all of our lives are not conforming to God's word perfectly. We need one another in our lives that are 
helping us grow into godliness, doing us some spiritual good as they make judgments into our lives. This is drastically important for who we are to be as God's people. And it's the means by which we are preserved and persevered by God the Spirit throughout our life. And in this task, we are to take no joy in doing so, nor do we hold one another to different standards that we don't have for ourselves. Rather, we simply take God's word and make it known to one another for their spiritual good. So when we confront others in sin, we ought to do so humbly and patiently and kindly with fear and trepidation, knowing that God has placed us in that person's life. We are seeing their sin and he's called us to talk to them about their sin for their good and also for our self-reflection. If I come to approach you about a sin in your life, but I haven't first spent time with the Lord asking him about that sin in my life, I could very easily be very hypocritical towards you, right? Aren't to be like that. We don't want to be guilty of the same sin, thereby trying to help them with their little twig when we have a massive beam sticking out of our face. And so, so as we open up God's word and apply it into our own hearts and lives, we do so knowing that God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't that interesting? God's word is the one that does what? It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not you, but God's word. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So we must act like this towards one another when making judgments. Well, to do so soberly, gently, kindly, knowing that we also must give an account for how we are living as God's people. So one danger that we will face then is that we can be hypocritical. And we ought not to be. But the other danger that we might also face is that we might not want to say anything at all to one another. This is a great Canadian fault. It is doesn't it seem unloving to go and to approach anyone when they're doing something sinful? I mean, who am I to go and approach them? I should just let them do what they do. Acting as if this is the most loving thing that you could possibly do for them. When God's word is saying this is not the most loving thing that you could possibly do for them. Right? In the same way that the most loving thing that I can do as a dad when I see my son running into the street and there's oncoming traffic just to say, oh, well, I'll just let him make his own decisions. Good luck, buddy. No, 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 no. No, I scream at him. I yell at him and I'm faster than him at this point. So I chase him down, grab him by his shirt, yank him back away from the road and I scream at his face and put my finger in and I say, you're about to die. Why? Because I love him. The most loving thing we do as Christians is confront other people when they are headed towards an eternity of hell. The most loving thing that we do as Christians is confront someone in their sin when they're sinning. That is the most loving thing that we can do. It's not a loving thing to let someone remain in sin and rebellion to God's word, thinking that they and God are fine when in fact they are headed to hell and they don't know it. That's not a loving thing to do. And this is a hard thing to do because everything within us, within our culture just says, just live and let live. 
Let them do them. Let them live their truth. And God's word says, no, no, no. This is not how you are to live. You are to make judgments. You are to bring God's word into bear, but do not do it hypocritically. Do not be a Pharisee. Do not demand things of others from God's word that you're also not looking at and letting that weigh heavy on your own heart, repenting of the sin in your life as well. Now, if we look back at verse six as well, we, we have kind of the end of this illustration. Jesus has really perplexing words. He says, do not give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, this phrase, I almost didn't preach this phrase. This is a weird phrase. You're like, what do you do? What does this have to do with what we've been seeing? Why are dogs and pigs here? And aren't dogs and pigs great? Like, I love bacon. I love my golden doodle. Why, why are these things so negative? And it's important to know, back then at this time, dogs were not typically household pets. Rather, they were scavengers. Oftentimes, they were diseased, greedy, dirty, and vicious animals. Like the wolves I have running around behind my house that I hear all the time. Like those kind of dogs is what they're talking about. So Jews would have never thrown any kind of holy item to them, like leftovers from sacrifices made in the temple. They would never do that. They wouldn't give holy things to unholy creatures. And pigs at this time were the epitome of uncleanliness. They couldn't be eaten, as we know from the Mosaic law. And they were also scavengers. They were found oftentimes around garbage dumps. And they were equally wild and vicious. In fact, my friend down in Texas, he has some property, and they actually have a pack of wild pigs, 30 to 40 of them, that run together, and they are some of the most vicious things in the world. They will turn and eat you if they could. If they thought they could catch you and kill you and eat you, they would just destroy you. They are, they are vicious creatures. Uh, they, they eat refuse and chemicals, anything they can find, so you don't want to even shoot them and eat them because it's just disgusting. In the same way... Uh, they, they see in this text that, that we aren't to do what to these pigs. We're not to throw our pearls before them, lest they trample those underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, pearls were the most rarest and most valuable of jewels. Later on in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven will be described like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one of great value sells everything that he has and buys it. So the pearl in mind there is the good news of the gospel, the word of God. And, and how we ought to, all, ought to sacrifice everything in order to have eternal life, give up everything, laying everything aside and pursuing his kingdom with singular devotion. So if we take that idea of what, how do we see pearls used even in this book, we need to take that back to chapter six, verse seven, chapter seven, verse six. What Jesus is saying in this peculiar verse is that we need to make right judgments. Again, this, this has to do with making right judgments because we need to know who the hogs, who the dogs are. We need to make right judgments as we share the good news of the gospel, as we call out sin and point people to Jesus. Because we need to have great judgment here because there are people, there are those who, because of their great perversity and ungodliness, they will refuse to have anything to do with the holy and precious things of God except to trample them under their feet and then turn to try to devour you and tear you to pieces. So Jesus is giving a very good amount of wisdom here. And as we've seen, Jesus primarily has here the hypocrites in view, these, these men who pretend holiness in their externals but are dead on the inside, false teachers leading people astray. And what we know as we see the gospel advance in the early church is that the early church was plagued with men like this, false teachers, just like we are today. In fact, the same vocabulary is picked up, uh, is used by Jesus, from Jesus, is used by Peter in 2 Peter when he warns about false teachers. If you want to look at me, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 
says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And then picking up in verse 12, he says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. And then verse 17, he says, there are waterless springs. They are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And then in verse 22, what the, proverb, what the, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This idea of dogs and pigs being those who will trample on God's word and come to attack God's people is a consistent theme we see throughout God's words that's used. And so what Jesus is saying here specifically is that we need to be aware of these false teachers, picking up on where it'll take us next week. There are these scribes and Pharisees who would absolutely reject and ridicule the gospel, believing themselves to be holier than everybody else and without fault. See, and there's this way that as Christians, we can waste our time with people because we are not judging them rightly. We can give them holy things, precious pearls, while they are actively trying to attack us. For example, social media is a hotbed of this. There are people in social media that you're just like, I just am gonna leave that alone. That is a hotbed of craziness. I'm gonna make a judgment that I am not jumping into that conversation. That is, I am staying away. And that's good and a godly thing from time to time. One pastor explains it like this. There will be times when the gospel we present is absolutely rejected and ridiculed and we make the judgment to turn away and speak no more, deciding that we should shake the dust off our feet and begin ministering somewhere else. There will be times when those to whom we witness will resist the gospel and blaspheme God and we may speak words of judgment on them. Like Paul, we must then in effect say, Acts 18, six, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. See, when people not only reject the gospel, but insist on mocking and reviling it, where we are not, we are not to waste God's word and precious pearls of his truth in a futile and frustrating attempt to win them. We are to leave them to the Lord, trusting that somehow his spirit can penetrate their hearts, as he apparently did with some of those who first rejected the preaching of Paul and the apostles. Now, the good news is that God can still work in the hearts of those who are militantly opposed to the gospel and, turn to, and who turn to attack us. Specifically, I think about Paul's conversion. I mean, if you could think about a man who was a Pharisee who religiously and maliciously and viciously attacked people who threw the pearls of the gospel before him, you would you'd be hard-pressed to find a man compared to Paul. And yet, by God's great grace, he saved Paul. But you know what the interesting thing is about Paul's conversion is? As he's laying hands on violent, violent, violently on Christians and throwing them in, into prison, the apostles don't invite Paul over to a dinner party. Isn't that fascinating? That's not how he gets saved. They're not sitting around having some fish and some wine and Paul is opening up the scriptures and showing to, or uh, Peter's doing that to Paul, showing him the gospel. No, rather, God intervened and saved Paul and then sent him as a messenger to the Gentiles, not to Jerusalem. 
So as Christians, we can trust that God the Spirit is working in the lives of people who he's shared with who are militantly opposed to the gospel. But we don't need to spend all of our time trying to win and converse and persuade people who are constantly turning and attacking us. So, so we, we have had the beam taken out of our own eye by grace, but we need to be warned that there are false teachers and heretics who will not hear you. There are those who are so enamored with sin, they will hate you. Those who are so swayed by culture, they will call you vicious names. They will malign and mock and ridicule God's word. They will blaspheme God and his word as they call you transphobic, misogynistic, and homophobic, and right-wing bigots who hold unacceptable views. Friends, they did this to our Savior, God, and King, and they will do it to you. And we can expect this in our culture. Thus, we need to make right judgments. And as Titus commands us, in Titus chapter 3, verse 10 to 11, he commands us this. He says, talking about false teachers, after warning him once, then twice, he says, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So friends, we need to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. And we need to make right judgments, knowing how and when to apply the gospel and share the gospel with those that are around us. So, so I pray that as we're wrapping up our time together, we'd be reminded that the whole point of Jesus' command here is not to judge not. Uh, it's not some blanket statement to be wielded as a weapon to you as you try to confront one another in sin. We're not to use this phrase with one another as, as members of this, of this body. If someone comes and approaches you with sin, your response isn't to be, judge not, lest you be judged. Nope, your response is to be, hmm, I should probably assess that in my life. It's not this blanket statement to be wielded as a weapon. It's not a trump card to be thrown down so we can just keep doing whatever we want. Rather, it's a command to not judge hypocritically or in a self-righteous manner. Because in doing so, we're incurring the judgment of God on us. Thus, what we ought to do then, firstly, as Christians, is to be those who are humbly repentant of our own sins. We, we need to ask God to remove this log from our own eyes as we repent of these sins and believe upon Jesus. Then our job is to help our brothers and sisters in ways where their lives are not conforming as well to God's word. And, and, then, and then we are to be those who share the good news of Jesus with those as well outside of our church who are walking in unrepentant sin. We're to warn them and preach the gospel to them, making right judgment based on God's word being very careful not to be self-righteous and not to be hypocritical, rather by our lives demonstrate the faith that we are proclaiming to those who we hope to see come to know Jesus. And then as they turn and attack us and destroy us and malign us and mock us, we might continue to pray for them, but we also might say it might be better for us to spend more of our time, energy, and focus trying to share the gospel with those who have not heard rather than constantly trying to preach over and over and over again to people who want nothing to do with us and who hate us and keep mocking our religion, our God, our King, our Savior, and His Word. And in all of this, we are to make judgments as His people. We are to do so rightly, humbly, prayerfully, and still trusting that God is working in and through us as He will continue to grow us as we practice our righteousness, looking forward to his coming kingdom, finding all of our hope and confidence there. So that's Matthew 7, one to six. So let's pray uh, and then we'll sing a bit in response together.
So Father, I wanna thank you for your word and how you use it in our lives in a myriad of ways. I, I pray that as we are striving as your church to learn and to grow, to mature in godliness as we look at your word, that you would use one another in our lives to help point out things and sins in our life that we might have that, that we just don't see. I pray that your word would also do the same thing as we get into your word and it gets into us, that there would be areas of our lives that we would repent of various things in our life. Pray that you would graciously show us that so that through your word and through your people that we might continue to have lives that are marked by repentance. And then as we go forth into the world sharing the hope of the gospel with others, pray that people would come to know you, Jesus, as their God, King, and Savior. And I, I pray that we would be faithful to continue to share and to find ways that we can leverage our lives for your kingdom. We love you and we ask your blessing in this. In Christ's name we pray. So thanks again for tuning in to this special episode of Basecamp. If you would like to know more about the Trails Church, you can visit trailschurch.ca or send us an email at info at trailschurch.ca. Thanks and God bless.